a story from our great script from Genesis chapter 25, beginning with verse 19. These are the descendants of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padam Aram, sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and his wife Rebekah conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is to be this way, why do I live? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples born of you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the elder shall serve the younger. When her time to give birth was at hand, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy mantle, so they named him Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand gripping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man living in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he was fond of game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking a stew, Esau came in from the field and he was famished. Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stuff, for I am famished. Therefore, he was called Edom. And Jacob said, first, sell me your birthright. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? And Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. This is a story of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. This passage got me thinking this week about the stories I tell about my children. When my oldest child was five or six years old, she took swimming lessons from an, an experienced wise, kind instructor, and at the end of one lesson, Miss Carol pointed out to me, I think she likes to float on her back more than any kid I've ever seen. Yet, that's my child, the dreamer. My middle child, well, she was colicky for the first several months of her life. She cried and cried and cried and cried. Actually, both of us did. One of the only things I remember from that time was my friend Pam, a neonatal nurse, telling me, colicky babies end up having high IQs. And my youngest, well, it was tricky taking my youngest to the grocery store when he was a toddler because of the produce section. The produce section was torture. You see, it's embarrassing to admit this, but his first word was not mama, it was ball. And when we walked through the produce section, he only saw stacks and stacks and stacks of balls, green and yellow and red and orange balls everywhere. These three stories 
only amounts to mere minutes from the years and years that I've spent with my children, but they are the stories that I remember. They're the stories that I repeat because of who my children are right now. A dreamer, a reader, a sports fanatic. Pete Enns, who is a biblical scholar and a theologian, says, we don't randomly write about the past for the sake of the past. The past is always written about for the sake of the present. There's an undeniable connection between the stories that we tell of the past and the present moment. Over and done stories are not over and done when they are retold. They interpret the present moment. And so stories of the good old days help us understand who we are, and they even help us to understand who we long to become. So as meaning-making machines, then we selectively consider the stories that we tell, the stories that we retell, and we continually attempt to be honest about who we currently are and who we yearn to become. It's one of the things I like about Bible stories. The text, or our script, as Walter Brueggemann said in the video, and I'm finding that this summer I especially like the stories of Genesis. Genesis stories are not idealistic, and yet they are foundational. I think it's because the people are flawed and real, but more importantly than that, the hope is very plain. The hope is tangible. The hope is transferable. And so it's the hope that we're after when we retell these stories. The truth about our faith ancestors, the Israelites, is that these are people who testify to a strength that is beyond themselves. And this is especially true of Rebecca and Isaac and their twin boys. In the opening of the story, Rebecca and Isaac are without children. They're without children for quite a significant amount of time. And this doesn't make much sense. Isaac is of the promise the promise, remember, where the Lord said, I will make of you a great nation. Your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And Rebecca, well, she's of good stock. She is generous and adventurous, but there are no children. Where are the descendants? Where are the numerous stars? Both Isaac and Rebecca pray. The text doesn't give us the specific words of Isaac's prayer, but I imagine it's much like Rebecca's prayer found in verse 22. If it is to be this way, why do I live? A better translation might be, why me? Have you ever prayed, why me? Or help? Why is this so difficult, Lord? It's a biblical prayer. You got it from the script. It is yours to pray anytime you need it. Why is this so difficult, Lord? Help me. Walter Brueggemann says about Isaac and Rebecca's family, they aren't like other families. Other families can invent. They can govern their futures, but this family is different. This family is marked by the promise which means only God secures their future. 
They need God. They can't claim rights or certainty. In fact, rights and certainty seem to slip right out of their hands. Things look rather precarious, precarious at times for this family of the promise. But they rely on God, and we rely on God. We have no other choice. When Genesis introduces us to the twins, we can see the precariousness of the situation even more clearly. There's one son, the first one, who is everyone's hero. He's healthy, he's hardy, he's strong, he's hairy at birth. He's rugged, he's unafraid. This is a man of action, even as a child, a man of action. This is a man-child. In the last verse of the story, verse 34, there is a sentence about Esau and Jacob. And about Esau, there are five verbs, five things that he does. He ate, he drank, he rose, he went on his way, he despised. This is a man of action. Jacob only does one thing, but Esau does five things. In any culture, ancient or modern, Esau is the hero. Then there's the second twin. The second twin is our guy. He's our poster child. And to be quite honest, this is a little embarrassing. He's quiet. He's pale. He's a mama's boy. Truly. Maybe the first mama's boy. And not only that, he's a grabber. His name is Jacob. In Hebrew, Jacob looks like and sounds like the word heel, as in the heel, the ankle of his brother that he was clutching as they were born. And another similar sounding Hebrew word is, brace yourself, deceitful or crooked or perverse. This is our guy the deceitful heel grabber, the child of the promise. There are times that this serves Jacob well. There are times also when he overdoes it. It's as if the line between lying and outwitting, between deception and just trickery is hard to find. When we get to the part of the scripture passage for this morning about Isaac taking the birthright from Esau. It means that he would be taking the leadership of the family and a right to a double portion of the inheritance. It looks like that Esau may be a bit dull or impatient or maybe both. And what about Jacob? Is he outwitting his brother or is he shady and dishonorable? Is this necessary? I'm not sure. I'm not certain. What I am sure of, what I am certain of, is that in these stories of the faith patriarchs, we are repeatedly shown that God will provide. It's in the story of Hagar and Ishmael. It's in the story of the binding of Isaac. It's in the story of Abraham's servant and Rebekah. God will provide. God will find a way. There's no need to manipulate a system of grace. But that's who Jacob is. From the very beginning, even in the womb, 
He's grabbing. He's manipulating. Maybe he hasn't been told that there's no need. Or maybe he's so afraid that he is clutching for any piece of security he can find. Maybe he's angry that the promise doesn't look so promising. In the book, Our Greatest Gift, Henry Nowen wrote about another set of twins, a brother and a sister, talking to each other in the womb. The sister says, I believe there is life after birth. And her brother protests, no, this is it. We should cling to the cord that feeds us. The little girl insists, there must be more. There must be a place of light and freedom. But she can't convince her brother. After some silence, she says hesitantly, I have something else to say. I think there's a mother. Well, this makes her brother furious. What are you talking about? I've never seen a mother. You've never seen a mother. Who put that in your head? And she says, well, don't you feel those squeezes every once in a while? They're unpleasant. They're uncomfortable. But I think they're getting us ready for a place more beautiful than this. There's no need to manipulate or discount a system of grace. Grace is inevitable. It's worth waiting on, and it's worth trusting. When you see someone who is setting a bar or making some rules, these are the things that you need to do to receive good things from God. Alarm bells should go off in your head. Grabber, he's a grabber. She's a Jacob. And when you see it in yourself, because you will, it's in every single one of us. We are all Jacob. Just remember, there are those who don't deserve to be loved. His name, her name, is beloved. Beloved sons and daughters, every single one of us. Will you pray with me? God of yesterday, today, and tomorrow, we call to mind your presence within us and around us. Open our ears that we may hear your voice. Open our hearts that we may understand your hope. Open our mouths that we may speak generously. Inspire us with good news that we may celebrate all that is life-giving, restore hope where it is lost, and work to bring about change where it is needed. May we live the gospel with courage, with constancy, and with love. Amen.